Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Tonight we're delighted to present an evening of short stories which is in partnership with Pinjop, with whom the RA presents a series of live events in which special guests are invited to read short stories inspired by our exhibition programme. Um, and tonight's event is part of our programme connected to our current exhibition, um, Charles I, King and Collector. And if you haven't been, I would strongly recommend you do. It's, it's a very, very um, special exhibition. Um, and I'd now like to hand over to Simon Oldfield. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kira, for the introduction. And, um, and as Kira says... We're from Pindrop. I'm Simon Oldfield. I'm the co-founder of Pindrop. And um, it's great to be back here at the Royal Academy to introduce the latest in our ongoing series in collaboration with the RA, which sees us welcome to the stage world-leading authors, actors and thinkers to read and discuss short fiction in response to the exhibitions. This evening is particularly special. The event is held against the backdrop of the landmark exhibition, Charles I, King and Collector, which I'm sure many of you have seen or about to see. It really is quite something else to bring all those things together again, all those amazing treasures of the collection. And as you will know, during his reign, Charles I built up such a treasure trove of artworks and other objects, um, which is all scattered across Europe after the execution of Charles I in January 1649, and then the elevation of Cromwell. And this is the first time it's been brought back together since the 17th century, so it really is quite a significant monumental exhibition. And tonight we have Graham Swift, I think one of the most celebrated British authors. He is uh, going to read one of his own short stories, which, as you will hear, is so perfectly connected to the themes of the exhibition. They will then be followed by a, a Q&A and, uh, with me and then open up the floor to questions. So you all have an opportunity to ask him your burning questions about this story and other works of his as well. So thank you all so much for coming and welcome to the stage, Brooker Prize winning author, Graham Swift. Thank you very much, Simon. And uh, hello, everyone, and thank you all for being here. And may I thank very warmly the Academy and Pindrop for asking me to be here once again. The story I'm going to read, called Hematology, uh, links with the Academy's current uh, focus on Charles I, uh, because it is set precisely on the 7th of February, 1649, one week after Charles was executed. It takes the form of a letter, hence the exact date, and a letter written by a real historical figure, William Harvey, who uh, discovered how the heart works to circulate the blood. Harvey was a great scientific revolutionary. Uh, he challenged the dogmas of his day, but he was also the physician to both James I and then, even in the Civil War, Charles I. The letter is written to a cousin of his called Ned. Uh, the two cousins were once very close. They even went to school together uh, but they have been estranged now for some years since Ned was on the other side in the Civil War and has in fact risen to a high position in the parliamentary army and thus among those in power at Westminster. Harvey, meanwhile, has withdrawn from public life. He is staying at his brother's house in Roehampton, now in southwest London. And both these cousins are men in their 70s. The cousin Ned, I should say, is entirely imagined, though I like to think he might have existed. And you might like to imagine that you are him. And I am composing a letter to you on a February evening in 1649. My dear cousin, well, Ned, if I may still so call you, uh, 
And if you will deign to hear from me, we have lived through extraordinary times. Were there ever such times as these? And now I must cede to you that you are of the winning party, and may lord it over me, who was the close attendant of kings, nay, of our late, our very late, King Charles. Or would you have me name him, if I have this right, tyrant, traitor, murderer? Would you daub me with those same charges for having been so privy to his majesty, though must I not call him that? for having ministered to his fevers and coughs? Would you have me place my own head upon the block for having been such a bodily accomplice to tyranny? Then it would be seen, would it not, if my argument for the motion of the blood held true. Physician, prove thyself. But was it not proven when that royal blood, if I may so call it, spurted forth but a week ago in Whitehall? Is it not proven when any man's head or limb is separated from his body, as has been the lot of many a man, nay, of women and children too, during these late times? A king is but a man like any other, as it needed seven years of war and trial by Parliament to determine the matter, when any such as I might have attested to it. I have dissected criminals and examined kings. Anatomy is no respecter. And that, Ned, was my grounding and my ground long before those of your party set out to curb the king's powers. There are tyrannies and tyrannies, treacheries and treacheries. There are some even now of my party, I mean the party of physicians, who would not blench or lament to see my old head removed from my body for having raised my standard against King Galen. There are many kinds of rebellion. We were but boys, Ned, when the Armada closed upon our shores. Yet, would we not then have rallied round our monarch? Rally, I say. We had become men when Raleigh's head was severed from his body. And do we not both feel then some of the sharpness that smote him? There were many of your party for whom that day, I dare say, marked a severance. It was their beginning, their pretext. It was the beginning, perhaps, of our own severance. And yet, did we not both feel also by then that there is a motion, a fluctuation in the fortunes of men, an ebb and flow, a rise and fall, beyond all issue of government or justice, and that it is into these unrestrained tides that we enter as we enter the world. We set our little skiffs upon them. As Raleigh set many a fine vessel, upon the waters of his ambition. Should I have stepped in, Ned, to bid my former master, King James, withhold his warrant upon so worthy a head? I was but his physician, not his counsellor, and had been in his service scarcely a year. And Raleigh went to his death, boldly and nobly. As did, but these few days past, my other late master, Charles. Is that all we must call him now, but Charles? As you and I may still call each other, or so I trust, Ned and Will, boys, 
who once played at knucklebones and did battle with the wooden swords of our rulers at our school in Canterbury. And quaked in our shoes, no doubt, at the wrath of our then masters, or spoke impudence about them behind our hands when their gown backs were turned. They were but our schoolmasters, Ned, but that was then all our world. Such tyranny, such subjection, such fledgling rebellion, such nursing of our destinies. And it was the King's School at Canterbury, mark you, though it was still the reign, long to continue, of, as we would call her even in our prayers, our Sovereign Lady, Queen Elizabeth. What times, Ned, that one might read the Book of Fate and see the revolution of the times. Do I have that line correctly? Is that not King Henry IV, deposer himself of kings? But it was you, Ned, who attended the playhouses, and I believe houses of another kind, while I attended my lectures at Padua. You who are now of God's militia, while I, to pass the hours, read more of the poets than I do of the Bible. Do I speak treason? You were for the law, Ned. I was for physic. You were for the middle temple. I was for Padua. Was that not indeed the seed of all our future differences? And yet was not the common seed, the common stirring of the blood, quite so, ambition. I was for anatomy. You, with your lawyer's trenchancy, were for the bones of human contention. It was always in you, Ned, though it was your profession then to fight but with words. You had the makings of a swordsman. One day you might draw a true weapon. I had only my scalpel. Even with your wooden ruler, you were, more often than not, as I recall, the vanquisher. And now I must own again that you are my victor. Nay, my ruler, do I not live now under your rule? How do those lines continue, Ned? If this were seen, the happiest youth viewing his progress through, what perils past, what crosses to ensue, would shut the book and sit him down to die. I am an old man now. I sit by a winter fire. But I freely admit I was ambitious too. My cause was the advancement of learning, but also the advancement of myself. Why did I marry my late wife, Liz? Because I wished to be her husband. And because I wished to be the husband of the daughter of the late Queen's physician. It opened more doors for me than all my laurels from Padua. And yet... How I miss her. My dear Liz, my late Liz. Late. Tis the only word for us now. Now we have passed our three score and ten. All is late. Though you may think, if God and your physician grant you health, that you are now but in your earliness, your newness. Do we not now have a new world? Is this not the seventh day of its creation? What times, Ned? Now it is I who must sit aside, 
withdraw and retire, taking shelter as I do here in my brother's house. It is I who must content myself with my books and studies, I who once it might truly be said, instructed kings. But I want no more. <laughs> you will perhaps smirk, Ned, to know that my studies remain upon the reproduction of our kind and of the animals at large. What food for mirth and raillery have I given my enemies and detractors, who are still many and persistent, that I, an old man, both wifeless and childless, should dwell upon such stuff? How they must snigger at me, Ned, as we once sniggered behind the backs of our schoolmasters. And yet, I would know, perhaps before I die, how it is that we come to be born, how we are shaped for this world. Leave that, some will cry to the doctors of divinity. Tread not upon such holy ground. So, Ned, are we not alike there? Did we not both come shaped with the rebellious, nay, heretical disposition to trespass on sacred soil in the interest, to be sure, of truth and justice and of ambition? I was no worshipper, Ned, in the church of kingship any more than you. But my interests, or shall I say, the interests of learning, bade me seek their best protection. Do you not wonder that our late king, tyrant, traitor, murderer, who clung so firmly to his own divinity, was yet the patron of so much that assailed the sacrosanct? And do you not wonder that those of your party who so boldly and blasphemously rose up against him are now entrenched in their own sanctimonies? Do I blaspheme now? How well I remember, Ned, when you and I last spoke together. It was some eight years past and at your table. There were the bonds of our kinship and of our friendship and of host and guest. And yet I felt a broil simmering. You said there was a time fast approaching when every man must make a stand. Of whose party was he? I said, May not a man make a stand, and a stout one, of being of no party. You said that was no stand at all. Or rather, as I recall, you said it was not the stand of a man, but of a tree. Would I be a tree and not a man? It was August. Your windows were flung open. Upon the view of your orchard, a whole regiment of trees hung, if I remember, with ripening apples. No, Ned, I said, I am not a tree, but let trees still decide the matter. I too have an orchard. Let us not quarrel over whose apples are the sweeter, but here is the true quarrel. If you or any man's party were to invade my orchard, cut down my trees, trample on my land, why then, I would be of the opposing party. There would be my allegiance. You would not take that for an answer. You said, well there, Will, you have spoken very wisely. For does not the king already cut and trample through the orchard that is his kingdom, claiming it as his right so to do, and that it is no man's land but his own. Is not then your allegiance decided? 
There was a smile on your lips, but there was a fire in your eyes. You poured another cup of ale. You said, there will come a time. Well then, Ned, I said, let us hope that time does not come tomorrow, nor the day after. And let us hope that when it does come, we do not fall out upon our cousinship, no matter which party we choose. I am a doctor. I must minister to all parties. But you would not take that for an answer, or your eyes would not. I had not seen them burn so much before. You plainly deemed that for certain causes, even a doctor must throw aside his instruments, as a lawyer must throw aside his books of law, and both must buckle on armor. How little I or you knew, Ned, that one day soldiers of your party would enter my chamber and ransack its contents, casting hither and thither my precious notes, papers, and experiments. There was my orchard for you. There was my party confirmed. But not to skirt about, how could I have said that my party was already chosen for me, as you well knew? How could I, who was physician to the king, who knew the king's very body as no other man knew it, be of any party but the king's? It was scarcely a matter of cause or principle. But how, equally, could I have said that I noted that fire in your eyes? I noted it as a physician notes symptoms. It was the fire of your cause, I grant you, and yet it was the fire also of envy, of an ambition not yet rewarded and overtaken by another's eminence. And such was the fire. I can say this now, now that you enjoy your eminence, that lit the eyes of many of your ranks, cause or no cause. Orchards, kingdoms, how could I have said, without seeming to speak like my master the king in his worst haughtiness, that my party was of bigger things? It is a small entity, Ned, the heart. It is a small allowance, the blood of any creature. And yet, it is to every creature the all of life. I was born, you know this, in Folkestone, which looks across to the continent. How could I have said that I was of the continent's party, nay, the world's party? England is but a small country, albeit my own. Why did I journey to Padua? How could I have said that I was of the party of such as Galileo, whose noble hand I have clasped? Knowledge is vaster than kingdoms, and while kingdoms come and go, it is the only true arbiter. How could I have said this to you, a lawyer and counsellor to members of parliament? Did you not have even then some eminence? Without adding fuel to that fire in your eyes. I care not for kings. I cared for the king. I was charged with the king's body, not the body politic. And it was a small and slight body for all its loftiness of demeanor. It was stunted by rickets. It was a body indeed that some <laughs> behind their hands might have sniggered at. How many of your party, Ned, knew so well your enemy? 
knew his fleshly infirmities as well as his kingly towerings, knew his private graces. When I attended his hunts, Ned, he would set aside for me so much of his quarry as I might use as fresh matter for my dissections. He did not trample on the advancement of learning. When he took up his headquarters at Oxford, he ensured I should have accommodation for my studies. It was his fortress of war, but still a seat of knowledge. I was made by the King's wish, warden of Merton College. You were made by Parliament's commission, a colonel of horse. We find our places, Ned. And either way, the orchard, the kingdom, the commonwealth, the republic, what are we to call it, lies bleeding and cut down. A commonwealth? See its poverty. A republic? A headless body. When I was at the field of Edge Hill, Ned, in attendance before my days at Oxford, I observed the pallor in my master's brow. It was but a man's pallor, the pallor of any man upon hearing the opening shots of cannon, and yet it was a king's pallor. No other man might have worn it. It was the first battle. Pray God, he must have thought it would be the only one. It was his first occasion of leading an army in battle, and certainly the first against his own people. What times, Ned, we who played at knucklebones. Truly, that battle, if such a disorderliness might be called a battle, was well named. For was it not a great edge of things, a great precipice overstepped? It was not for me, dissector of corpses and philosopher of the blood, to be affrighted at the carnage and slaughter. In truth, I spent much of the time behind a hedge, endeavoring to read a book. And yet I was affrighted at the look I saw on almost every man's face, be he for king or parliament, and you could not often well tell the difference, a look that said, so, it is a true thing now, and it is of this sanguinary substance, this thing that was but hours ago still a thing of speech and protestation. It is a thing now of experiment, and such the experiment. Had they chosen their party? Those, for the most part, green recruits who had not known a fight before? Had they chosen their party? Those who turned and ran or galloped before the charge of Prince Rupert? And had they chosen their party? Those of Prince Rupert's command, who yet knew it seemed no command, but charged ever on beyond the field, as if the battle were no battle, but a great chase, a great hunting of men. It almost cost the king the day. It certainly cost his winning it. Would that he had won it, Ned. Do I speak treason? It would have settled the matter. There would have been no more of such dreadful stuff. There would have been a battle only and no war. And I believe it was all in that pallor that I noted, that he knew he could win. He had the ridge, indeed, the edge, and all the advantages. He held the road to London. He might prevail as a king, should all at once prevail. And yet, it was that day that led to his placing his neck 
upon the block. But did you see it, Ned, that look upon the common face? I know that you were there. That is, it came to my later knowledge that you had been among Sir William Balfour's horse that led the countercharge against an army stripped of its own horse and very nearly seized a victory. You had distinguished yourself. It was the beginning of your late one eminence, not as a man of law, nor even of parliament, but of war. And yet did you know even then that I was there? Did we look upon each other, Ned? This I would know. Your face would have been hidden by a helmet, but not my own. Did you see my face? And yet did you see in any case that look upon the general face that said, all England is a butcher's yard now. All England is a hunting ground and every man a quarry. Did we see each other, Ned? I did not fight. I carried no weapon. I carried a book, thinking I might be idle. I attended the king. I tended the wounded of both parties. It was an October day and bitter cold. Darkness blessedly came early, ending the matter in no party's favor, but not stopping the pain of wounds. Did we look upon each other, Ned? I was never a man of arms, but I am haunted still by this dream that you and I face each other on a field of battle. I have no medicine to drive away this vision. We both have swords drawn. They are not wooden rulers. Tis not apples and orchards. It has come to this. Did you see my face, Ned? And should I be thankful I did not see yours? Tis bitter cold this night, too. I write by firelight and candlelight. Either way, the land lies ravaged. Soon they say Parliament's victory will be further visited upon the people of Ireland. You are surely too old now to command a regiment there. And yet, physician as I am, I know not the metal of your aging body. It is a toughening school, no doubt, the army. And the heat of battle, so it would seem, is a heater of the soul nay, of zeal for the Lord. We are all of God's party now, but some more so. Is that not the case? There were all along in this affair but two parties, the army and the people. That too is now more so. And either the army would be our church or the church our army. We have no civility, but a confusion of godliness and war. Such our new world. Well, Ned, I am of the people's party now. I am only of the people. Though I have served kings, I am, as physician, only of the party and of the care of every body. I believe, and indeed can demonstrate, that every man's internal organs obey the same government. I still hold faith in the advancement of learning, if I believe less, that by learning, we advance. But tell me, Ned, did we see each other? And 
tell me true. Might we yet, in the time remaining to us, see each other again? We are kinsmen, and whatever the divisions between us, we are now both old men. I would have been your physician, Ned, most happily and truly, if you had asked me, and would be so still. Old men need physicians. Unless your Cromwell takes a crown, neither of us, I dare say, will know another king. So we are as one there. You would be most welcome here at my brother's house. You may view for your amusement my experiments. Tis not a long journey from Westminster. There is good ale. There is even an orchard. Be it there now. We should sit and be at peace, Ned, and talk as old men are given to talk and to remember what times we have seen. Your humble servant and cousin, William Harvey, Doctor of Physic. We have another round of applause for Graham, I think. Thank you, Graham. That was um, amazing. We've had many actors stand on this stage um, who have done brilliant jobs, but they have not delivered word perfect, line perfect, and you seem to memorise that whole thing. That's very impressive. Just as a note. Uh, <laughs> well. One likes to do one's best uh, and enter the spirit of the thing. Uh, obviously, I prepared, and if you prepare, you do start to memorise. And after all, I wrote this story, so the words <laughs> are in my head. That's uh, why we got you here, right? Yes, yes, yes. That really was an extraordinary reading, but the reading aside, the story itself is um, fascinating. It's so layered. It so, has so many different... Uh, aspects to it, which I think is what's so fascinating about it. And you can read it time and time again, particularly since it's coming from you know the single perspective. It's not the kind of traditional short story, but yet there is so much in it. Mm. I know we spoke about it earlier a little bit, but yes. um, I think the layers, the, the 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 complexity of that that particular story, the letter that would be great well, to hear your thoughts on. Well, it's a very good example of um, something rather marvellous in a, a, a writing life. Um, I was dreading you were going to ask me how did this story come about, um, but I will now answer that question <laughs> um, by saying, uh, actually, and I'm not dodging the question, I don't know. It was one of those things which suddenly I found myself doing. Now, it must have come from something I read somewhere about William Harvey. Uh, but I was never in a situation where I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to write a story in the form of a letter uh, written by William Harvey? Not at all. It just happened. As happily some other things I've written have happened very suddenly, and the imagination gets working very fast. Um, the other thing I should say is, of course, that it, it's a story in a collection of stories, England, England and other stories, and um, that collection happened in, in a way in a similar fashion. Um, I went through a long period of not writing stories at all. Uh, the last collection of stories that I published was in the early 1980s. And suddenly, not long ago, two or three years, I found myself writing story after story, such that I realized this was a body of stories, it was a book. And then I was looking for a theme for the book, which is in the title it now has, England and Other Stories, which is a very ironical, uh, kind of not straightforward um, theme. 
And without doubt, this story was very important in bringing that collection together because it is so quintessentially about England, England yes. undergoing its most intense historical convulsion. Mm. And like the other stories, you seem to in, in, inhabit the characters so brilliantly and they're very diverse characters throughout the collection and we meet so many different characters. But in mm. this particular one, there is something you know, so powerful about the relation between the two, between the two cousins, but also the kind of the, the personal and public histories that are intertwined. And I think that's what's so successful within yeah. this particular story. Well, um, as I said, when I introduced the story, <coughs> Ned is an uh, entirely fictional mm. character. Um, but given that the letter which you know, as letters go, it takes a fairly free form. It is a story, which is a letter. Um, it turns into a sort of dialogue, mm -hmm. or one half of a potential dialogue, between the two men. So, uh, inevitably, the character of Ned, though he cannot speak for himself, uh, emerges. Uh, and I think that was one uh, excitement about the story. The other thing, without a doubt, was the, the, um, the paradox, the irony, that here was this man, Harvey, who was in the forefront of what we would call science, uh, certainly the advancement of learning, uh, mm -hmm. looking at the world in an experimental, empirical way, and yet he was the intimate servant of this autocrat, yes who rested so much on very superstitious uh, notions of divine right and yeah. uh, the very thing that the, the new learning was um, undermining um, and that Harvey was part of, uh, and yet he was a servant to the king. Yes, yeah, he was a conflicted character, I think, wasn't he? On many levels, you sort of get a sense of that, I think, when you're going through it, just the way he is the way that he is communicating in the letter, the way he's you know, pleading in one moment and then defending and attacking in other moments. But yet, yes, a man of knowledge is the thing which comes Well, through. he's, uh, as I said, he's over 70. Mm. Um, so he's had much, uh, uh, he's had a long career. Um, he's lived through a lot and he's acquired a lot of learning. Uh, I think he would be, would have been a very proud man. Um, and I think he would have been quite an angry man. And perhaps some of the anger came over. And mm. it's as much as anything about, the anger is about just the sheer destruction, the sheer mm. waste and misery and uh, agony of a civil war. I mean, a civil war must have been horrible. Yeah. Um, is that a particular period of history that you are interested in? Is that where the, the, the seed for the story began? Uh, well, it, it certainly gave fuel to it. I mean, I think the first half of the 17th century was an extraordinarily intense mm. uh, sequence of decades because you had, right at the beginning, it was the end still of Elizabeth I's reign. Mm -hmm. uh, Shakespeare would have been writing some of his greatest plays in the early 1600s. You had all of the stuff of the new learning, Bacon and mm -hmm. others. And then you had the political stuff and even a civil war, all of which was intermingled in an uh, extraordinary way with religion. Um, and it's, if you look at the next 50 years of the, uh, of the same century, it's amazing that so much got clarified and sort of calmed down by, uh, you know, 1700. Um, I think the Civil War must have been terrible. Yes. Um, and even now, I think we don't particularly like to go near it. Um, the Tudors are extremely popular. <laughs> uh, you know... Not another TV series about Henry VIII. <laughs> um, but the Stuarts, not so much. And, and, and do you think that's because uh, of the Civil War? Particularly the Civil War. And I, I, I think it's for a very crude, fundamental reason. We don't... It's, it's nasty. It's yeah. frightening. Yeah, families turn yeah. on when one another. When we face yeah. our own country mm. having 
been in such a thing. We don't really like to go there, even though it's a long time ago. And, of course, we see civil strife all around the world, and mm. we see what it's like, and, indeed, we see what it's like when it's mixed up with religion. Do you think uh, this exhibition will invite people to maybe re-examine that period to some extent? Because there were, there were obviously, like any story, there are two sides to it, and um, there is a sort of magnificence to the collection, which, of course, was built in a particular image of the monarchy and of King yes. Charles I himself. But do you think it will give people, I mean... Who knows, but it, will it give that opportunity again to re-examine it? Well, I, 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 I hope it might make th people think about the complications of history mm -hmm. and the ironies of history. Uh, the, the current exhibition manifestly shows that Charles I was a patron of the arts, the visual mm. arts, painting. Um, my story, in its modest way, uh, shows that Charles I was also a general patron of uh, learning mm. and what we would call science. And as I say, of the very things that actually undercut his own mm. sort of ideological position. Um, so that's quite complicated. Yes. That's all within one man's kind of um, powerful uh, ambit. Mm. Um, uh, I don't think one should take a simple view of, of Charles I. No, I think that's very clear from yeah. Yeah, the, the story and from the exhibition. Um, so moving beyond the story, we've touched a little bit on the collection, and I know that we've spoken before about how stories, you never sit down and you think, I'm going to write a short story. They sort of come to you. There's a sort of, there's a, something arrives, a glimmer of something, and then the story unfolds Well, I, I would there. say uh, the best ones work like that. Okay. Um, the, the best times a, a writer can have is when something entirely unexpected uh, takes them completely, um, you know, unexpectedly, and uh, you, you don't think twice about it, you don't stop to think at the time, why am I doing it? It's just what you must do. That can happen with stories and indeed with novels. Mm. Um, others do come about by a, a much slower process of, oh, there's something brewing, and you, <laughs> uh, you know, you you push it along. Um, but easily the most exciting things are when you're you're dealing with something today that you simply had no inkling of uh, yesterday. Yes, uh, that must be quite exciting. Mm. And, the, and, of course, Mother and Sunday was a novella that was published recently, um, which is, I think, a you know, masterful work. It's really a real triumph. And um, it does something quite interesting with the way that you, know, you follow the, ca the characters and the way that it plays with history, again, of the person, the public, the backdrop, is very interesting. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about Mother and Sunday. Just take us beyond the, yeah, the well, short story collection. Uh, of course, Mother and Sunday is, I suppose, also historical because it's set in the 1920s, which is now quite a while ago. Um, <laughs> Hematology, incidentally, is easily my most historical story. It's mm -hmm. the furthest I've gone back. And it's also written, you read it today, just another, on an aside, <laughs> the 9th of February, which was the day that Charles I was buried. That is true. So there we yes. are, we're on another anniversary, just to he add was, another layer of something. He was executed on the 7th of February, he was buried on the 9th of February. And here you are today. And I, I, this is a, this is a, I, here I am today. Alive and well. Uh, uh, <laughs> I have another little gruesome uh, aside. Apparently, um, Charles I was buried on this day, 1649, and he was buried with his head back on. Oh. I didn't know that, no, but I, I found you know, I, something I found out via this story. Wow. It is pretty gruesome, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, um, and also, with the backdrop of all of this collection we see here, a lot of it was, you know, literally you could see it through the, through the windows, apparently. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm now completely yeah, forgotten yeah, exactly. your question. I, I can't remember either. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Uh, uh, no, you wanted me to talk about Mother and Sunday, yes. Uh, well, I could certainly say... A novella. That, uh, I like to think it's a novel. Oh, but, so sorry. Um, I stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> it, it also happened in the way I was describing. It, it came to me very subtly, and 
it was written for me quite quickly, and I had no previous inkling of it. I hadn't said to myself, wouldn't it be nice to write about a housemaid in the 1920s? No, it just suddenly happened, came together very quickly, and it was a great th thrill, uh, mostly, to write it. There was some work involved as well. Um, and, uh, well, you call it a novella. I'm sorry, it, I it, should have done I, I, I would call it... <laughs> we'll scrub it from I the I would audio. call it a, a, a novel of, uh, you know, short length. Of the perfect uh, length. <laughs> uh, um, I suppose, um, you know, given that the book before Mothering Sunday was the collection of stories. Mm. Then there was Mothering Sunday, a short novel. Uh, it has given me a bit of perspective on length or shortness and of, uh, to turn it round a bit, of how, whatever the length, it's, it's basically it's the same stuff. Um, people often make a very big distinction between the short story and the novel. Mm. They, they find ways of showing how they are different things, how they are easier or harder to write. They make distinctions, and I, I, I think, actually, they have much more in common than mm. they don't. And yeah, novels are long stories, short stories are short stories. It's the same art of narrative that you have to apply, it's the same stuff. And speaking for myself, I certainly uh, didn't feel when I wrote my short story book and concentrated on the short story that I'd become a different kind of writer because mm -hmm. I was writing a short story. No, I was just doing the same thing. You just tell a story in a particular form. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, but Mother and Sunday is, um, for me, fascinating because it has this... Uh, a, it's from the perspective of a woman, which I think is... And I think many people have commented on how, how well you have just you know, kind of captured that character. But also the, uh, the way that there's this, this, you're, you're taken along on this journey and the, 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 the light that you feel that shone, shines out from the book and shone on those particular characters. There's, there's a real... Um, there's an optimism in the, in the book. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of joy in that yes. book. Uh, it's not, of course, without its grief and its shadows, because it's not long after the First World War and yes. all that that implies. But no, there's great joy in that book. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is not just in the obvious sunshine and sensuousness of it, but in the fact that it does absolutely concentrate on a single day in the life of a young woman in her prime, she's 22, and then open it up into the whole of her long life. Mm. But that is all in the future. Yes. Uh, so all the time we are, we are getting glimpses into a future. So it's all about potential and possibility, mm. which itself is a, is a very positive um, idea. It was in many ways a joy to write. Great. And I'm going to ask you one final question before you open up to the floor, going in sort of reverse chronology of your incredible career. I think we have to touch on two books, Last Orders and Waterland, two books which you're perhaps best known for. Um, and of course, Last Orders for which you won the Booker Prize, um, which obviously changed your life was beyond measure. Um, a, long, but, a long time ago. <laughs> um, perhaps you could just talk a little bit about those two particular books and how they maybe, um, how, they, how they figured within your, your, your career. Um, well, uh, there was quite a gap between those books and mm. there were quite a, a, Over few, a, decade, a few books yeah. in between. Mm. Uh, Waterland was 1983. What a scary date that is. <laughs> uh, last order was, was 96. 96 yeah. um, after Waterland was published, I got known as mm. the author of Waterland. And that's sometimes <laughs> still the label that is placed around my neck. Uh, I think it took last orders to take that label off me. Mm. Um, uh, and so far as the Booker Prize goes, Waterland was shortlisted for the Booker and Prize. And last orders took it. Um, I was very glad to win it with Last Orders, and I felt, actually, that if there was a time 
when it was best to win it, it would have been at the last order's time, and not with Waterland, uh, when I was much younger, and I think it would have um, unbalanced me a bit. Mm. But mm. I was m much more able to enjoy winning and not be unbalanced by it with last orders. Um, but let's not dwell on the Booker Prize. I mean, uh, the Booker Prize is not the be-all and end-all. Um, uh, last orders now seems to me quite a long time ago. Mm. Uh, and of course, it has characters in it who are um, getting on a bit and who thus look back to really the, the mid-20th century or the beginning of the second half of the 20th century, which itself is receding. Um, you do realize as you um, carry on a writing career and get older yourself that um, your boy, it's not exactly that, I wouldn't say my books date, I hate to think of them dating, but there is a way in which they are products of their time. Mm -hmm. um, and of course I hope that what I, the stuff I write about fundamentally is timeless, but nonetheless they come, come from, from a point in yeah. time. Yeah. Mm. Okay, and on that note, um, I'm sure there are a few questions in the audience if anyone would like to ask anything. We all sat here, and I think, I'm sure all of us enjoyed it, but listening to this as the sort of how the wordsmith has constructed the story, I just wondered how you felt Ned would have received it. I, I have to say, I have a slight picture of him sitting there by a fire, beginning to read it, screwing it up and throwing it in the fire, not because of your writing, but because of what was written and his reaction to it, and then turning to have a drink and thinking, but I won. So I wonder what you think, Ned. Well, that's quite possibly what his reaction would be, but what could Paul William Harvey do about that? Uh, he was moved, uh, you know, well, we're, all, we're speaking about a fiction now, and there's nothing that William Harvey actually did, but I'll, I'll treat it as historical. I'll say that he was moved at that point to write a letter to his estranged cousin for whatever good it might do, um, and... <coughs> Obviously, he had no control over how his cousin would react, and he might, I mean, he was a pretty intelligent man, William Harvey. He might have thought, well, I won't get a reply to this letter, but I wanted to write it nonetheless. Mm. Um, I think the other thing I would say is, of course, that this is, this is a story. It's, it is a work of fiction, and although it takes a, a, the form of a letter, I think it... Um, it's, it, it's not quite like a literal letter. It's, it's more like someone uh, in the process of composing a letter. It has a freedom which a normal letter wouldn't do. Um, and thus, um, Harvey himself in it sort of acts out a bit uh, scenes in his life with um, Ned some of them actual ones and some of them uh, possible ones. So, so it's quite free in that way. Um, but, uh, you know, your, your point is entirely fair. He could have reacted anyway. You might get a flurry of fan fiction now with people replying in the voice of Ned. Yeah. <laughs> um, any other questions? I run the risk of irritating you, um, I fear. But we're in the midst of a civil war at the moment carried out rather ineffectually. No, there are two sides, Brexiteers and Remainers. Uh -huh. I'm a Remainer. Uh, but it has to be said, neither side is really very articulate about its point of view. Mm -hmm. So we're not having a very good argument. No. Uh, my question only is, could a novelist help us to have a better argument? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, actually, I don't, I don't want to disappoint you, but I, I doubt it very much. Partly because I, I like... Maybe a majority of people in this room have reached Brexit saturation <laughs> and, and, and have heard so much about it and have nothing much themselves to add. Um, I mean, I know where my heart lies in it. That's, that's me. Um, I would not describe the Brexit issue as a civil war because I think a civil war is a much more terrible thing. This is... Uh, a curious uh, historical evolution. Um, does it relate to the story I just read? I don't know. Um, Harvey, it would seem, by things that I 
get him to say was a man, if I can put it like this, of the continent. He uses the word mm -hmm. continent. Uh, and there were others like him. Uh, intellectually, culturally, he felt he belonged to the continent. That's mainly how I feel. And I, I, because I w I'm a writer, I would say this, that the word continent has resonances for me that it probably doesn't have for most people. Uh, when, I, when I get my character to use the word continent, of course it's the literal continent of Europe, but it also expresses a, a larger idea, I think, and it's the continent of mankind. Um, and I think Harvey would ascribe to that. And this is the same half century in which uh, John Donne famously wrote, you know, no man is an island entire of itself, every man beyond belongs to the continent. Um, I very much subscribe to that idea, you know, being part of mankind. Um, and against that idea, um, something like Brexit can actually seem rather piddly. Mm. Um, but where do you begin to, to embrace mankind? Mm. And I suppose there are other conflicts as well, which we were talking about earlier, which maybe have you know, stronger parallels with the story and you know, mm. things in Syria and various other places. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully we won't end up in bloodshed over Brexit. So you never know. Um, any other questions? I think we have time for one more. Thank you. This is a comment rather than a question, really. Um, the whole situation that you explore in your short story is of two people who have found themselves on opposite sides, yeah. the real one and the imaginary one. It's a very human story because how many of us have been in a situation where we would long to write or to say to somebody, a real person, with whom we have had a serious disagreement or with, with whom we are no longer in touch? And, and it touches the heart, really, to find that that you can't actually talk to people. Uh, and this is what your character, um, your real character, is working through in his, um, to his cousin because he's revisiting scenes of their childhood, mm. talking about their differences. And isn't it amazing that how this sort of, it's almost a sort of catharsis, that process, and how many of us reading that story would be almost touched by ref to reflect upon what a situation we might have been in, mm. well, but I, have never done anything about it. Uh, you've, you've, so thank you've, you very much. Well, you, you've, <laughs> you have asked a wonderful question. You made some really lovely comments. But what you have done is really opened up the essence of fiction mm -hmm. and of storytelling. Um, you know, two people on opposite sides is only one example of a, occasions in life where it is necessary to do some telling. Um, and I think you know, there is storytelling, so that means there is the business of story, which can have its own mystery and magic. Um, but I think it, the essence of it is the art of telling. And it's not just a, a, an art uh, peculiar to professional storytellers and writers. It's one of the arts of life. And it's an art of life which uh, myself included, um, so many of us fail at and never master. Over and over again in life, we find ourselves in situations where we have to say to somebody else, look, there's something I've got to tell you. Mm. And as soon as we utter those words in life, I think we are confronting the art of narrative uh, because it's how we do the telling that will be a human success or a human failure. And hematology is a story in the form of a letter, but it is about um, Harvey's attempt to do some necessary telling in the circumstances. Mm. And I think that's what we do over and over again. Yeah. Yes. And uh, there was one more question. It seems to me you must have done an awful lot of research into Harvey in the period. And my question is, to what extent did you engage at all or read about Thomas Hobbes, who, after all, is the most preeminent political philosopher ever born in this country and recognised as such universally? And the person who coined that phrase, or that is almost an axiom, that life is solitary, nasty, 
brutish and brutish short. And short. And I just think it wonder to what extent you did engage with Thomas Hobbes. Uh, well, I think I've engaged with Thomas Hobbes anyway by uh, being pretty aware of him and even having read some Thomas Hobbes. Uh, and of course, Hobbes was a bit younger than Harvey, but he lived through the Civil War. Uh, Hobbes was also a man to use this phrase, of the continent. He would have traveled to France and Italy. Hobbes, in fact, met Galileo and I, I believe had many sort of dialogues with Galileo. Um, so Hobbes was quite a, a big figure. Um, uh, Hobbes, in relation to the Civil War, well, what you have just quoted is the most well-known um, uh, line from Hobbes but it is so applicable to the Civil War. Hobbes in The Leviathan says, uh, if you take away the structures of, there's the word civility in my story, that'll do, civility, civilization, whatever you call it, you get what he called a, sta a state of nature, and the state of nature is a state of war. Uh, the war of every man against every man. Uh, and he describes it grimly and magnificently. You know, no arts, no letters, no society, no... Uh, um, goes on the constant fear of violent death mm -hmm. and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. And how much of that would have been true during the Civil War? Very, very true. Um, and on that note, thank you very much, Graham, for a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.